electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Yes, it does. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. We have a rip-roaring NASDAQ rebound on our hands today. If you trace it back to yesterday when we saw that big afternoon turnaround, a lot of debate about why. Is it Powell talking about inflation peaking this year? The Fed chair testifying before the Senate today, which is likely to confirm him for another term. We'll bring you the highlights. He's also saying the Fed will raise rates as needed to fight inflation. Is it Jamie Dimon? His bullish remarks on this show yesterday, also cited as a factor for the turn in sentiment. Is the great rotation already over or just getting started? And in rapid fire, Twinkies, donuts and chips, not that kind of chips, and a potential red flag for Bitcoin. Before all of that, let's start with Dom Chu and the market numbers at this hour. But I like those kinds of chips. I'm just saying the potato (laughs) ones, tortilla (laughs) ones anyway. Uh, So the chips she's referring to are driving a lot of that tech trade, the computer chip variety. But if you take a look at the major indices so far today, we've seen fractional gains and losses throughout the course of the day. So nothing dramatic, but still it represents a big move off the lows that we saw yesterday. The level that a lot of traders continue to watch right now as we stand at 15,086 for the Nasdaq Composite, is 14,700. That represents the 200-day moving average or a longer-term trend line for the Nasdaq Composite, not the 100, the Composite. So continue to watch that particular trade there. We've kind of bounced off that level intraday yesterday, hence maybe some of that support for the overall market. By the way, we hadn't breached that particular moving average, that level, since going back to April of the pandemic as we were emerging from the depths of the pandemic back in the spring of 2020. Also, from you can see the sector map behind me here, there's a lot of green on the screen so far. If you look at the overall picture, 2.5% gains for energy. Why? Crude oil prices on the rise by 4% for U.S. benchmark crude prices, $81.35. Ice Brent crude futures, the world benchmark up 3.5%. APA Corp, Occidental, Hess, some of the exploration and production names are doing pretty well in trading today. So it is that value cyclical side of things, Kelly, that continues to perform in today's trade. Energy, the best performing sector. I'll send things back over to you. Yep, we just got the total oil outlook for the year as well. That, you know, being cited as a factor, Dom, uh, some very big moves in energy. Three moves can pretty much sum up the market since last Monday, the first trading day of the year. Energy leads all sectors. Financials are strong in second place, and tech is down 5% to start the year, making it the biggest laggard of the sectors. So what do we make of it, and should we expect this to last throughout the first quarter, or is tech already staging a comeback? Bob Bassani is here with more. Hi, Bob. And, uh, you know, Kelly, energy has lagged for five years as tech has dominated. And in the last couple of months and really in the last few weeks, we've seen just the opposite. A lot of people are arguing we're in for a little bit of mean reversion. What's that? Mean reversion is the tendency for uh, stock prices to revert to their long term averages. And we've had an extraordinary run in the last 13 years since the Fed began this massive program to pump money into the economy in the great financial crisis in 2009. 
The S&P has averaged 15% returns. That is way above the historic norm going back more than 80, 90 years of about 10%. Now the Fed is reversing that whole program. And some people are suggesting that mean reversion would be in order here. That would be a period of suboptimal or subnormal returns, below 10% returns. We saw that just recently in a very short term here with the mean reversion. 2021, of course, technology stocks was a dominant factor uh, in the stock market. The uh, S&P tech sector was up 34 percent in 2021. It's been down five or six percent ever since then. These are short term, but these are indications that the market's starting to rethink this. Real estate investment trusts, which lagged for a long time, had a very good year, up 37 percent. It's been selling off very aggressively in the last several days, down six or seven percent. Even international stocks. The U.S. has outperformed the international markets for many, many years. And generally, 2021, it continued to do so. In 2022, we're seeing markets like Hong Kong and mainland China and Taiwan, uh, other parts of Europe that are outperforming. The U.K. is outperforming the U.S. So we'll see if this continues uh, or not, guys. I think the important thing, Kelly, is right now, the market is rethinking some of the assumptions that it's been working on for a number of years. And that is, for example, growth always wins over value. You see, they're trying to buy the growth names again today, mm -hmm. uh, but the market is clearly rethinking where they want to be. Back yeah, to we'll, you. we'll trace some of those moves in a moment, Bob. Thank you very much, our Bob Bassani. Today also marks the one-year anniversary of the so-called Reddit rebellion. So will meme stock names like AMC and GameStop also see a reversion to the mean this year, or can they continue to command higher premiums? Joining me now is Abe Deshpande. He's Centerstone Investors founder and chief investment officer. Abe, it's great to see you again. And, and before I ask you about the meme stocks, broadly speaking on the Nasdaq, which Paul Tudor Jones was saying today still has a P.E. north of 35. Do you think that is likely to remain under pressure until that P.E. comes back down into the 20s? Uh, yeah, I mean, I can sort of see both sides of this. Uh, but probably the most relevant one for me anyway is that multiples expanded while growth rates were expanding during COVID. And so what's the flip side of that is growth rates, you know, they don't go, they're not going to shrink, but are they going to slow the growth? What happens to multiples in that case? And I think that multiples should contract. So in that sense, I, you know, it's hard to argue that. So explain what you're talking about, the GDP growth slowing? No, you know, for instance, Microsoft was trading at 20 times, 25 times, maybe at the most earnings before COVID, while it was growing 10 to 15% a year. Last year, they're, they're growing and even last quarter, 20 to 25 percent of multiples at 40, 40, 40 times earnings. Mm -hmm. So if growth rates go back down to pre-COVID growth rates, what happens with multiple? I don't know who the natural buyer is for a stock that is highly valued, but the growth rate is coming down. Uh, that's not us. I, it's not most growth people. So I'm not sure who that natural buyer is. And that can create some, uh, you know, some uncomfortable moments, maybe if, if what I'm saying happens, like if growth rates actually start to to tail down. I like the way you're coming at this because most people have been trying to separate high PE from low PE or, you know, highly profitable versus not profitable or barely profitable. And you're really just no, looking this, at growth this, rates and this, trends. In this, in this universe of high multiple stocks, it's really like momentum stocks. It's driven by earnings uh, momentum. And the and the, you sort of compound it. Earnings grow very fast, and then you put a higher and higher multiple on that. That eventually reverses uh, at some point, it's happened many, many times. I don't know when that's going to be. Maybe it's now. Maybe it's 10 years from now for, that, for all I know. But uh, that's something to be worried about, especially now, because now clearly you're going to be starting to compare against, uh, you know, some very, this can be very difficult comparisons this year. 
so not to put you on the spot on a, on a particular stock, but Alphabet was a big dis, uh, point of debate last hour. This is a company that returned over 60 percent last year and had accelerating growth throughout the pandemic. Should they and other pandemic winners expect to see slowing growth and poor returns this year? Yeah, I mean, uh, Google or Alphabet, things like that, they, they don't have a lot of tailwinds that are uh, sort of divorced from the the COVID recovery uh, kind of idea, right? They have increasing market share of advertising and things like that that kind of feed into it. Um, but on the flip side, there are many other sort of meme companies that don't have the tailwinds. That Those types of tailwinds, they benefited from people bringing technology for, uh, spending forward into uh, to 2021 and, 20, and early this year. Those are the types of companies that are gonna have a difficult comparison. Teladoc is a really good example of that. They'll tell you in their own investor presentation, they're gonna grow 25% for the next four years, but they tell you, they're going to do that by their customer account only growing 3% a year. It's all cross-selling. So there's there's some sense that already uh, some of these, you know, very uh, popular meme stocks have already reached kind of a maturation point. Right. That's that's That calls into question the multiples. And those are the types of companies that probably should have or could have more difficulty this year. And a final question is we've outlined where you see a lot of risks. Where would you be putting your money then or where are you putting your money? You know, we continue to find as, I, I mean, you know, Ben Graham said, and I, I'm not even that old, but I feel old quoting Ben Graham, but, you know, but he said, you know, the market is on one, on the one hand, sometimes a voting machine, sometimes a weighing machine. Voting machine means whoever, whatever stock is the most popular has the highest, you know, price. We're going to where the voting machine is telling us that intrinsic value is divorced from the well-divorced, well-separated from the, um, the, the price. Um, and, and, you know, the market, it's, you know, the, 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 the purpose of the market is to weigh these, these, these intrinsic values and the purses of price prices. And the design of it is such that prices will fluctuate greatly from uh, the intrinsic value. So we're going international, we're going small mid caps and industrial names, things that would be broadly characterized as uh, recovery areas. Yeah. Uh, and we're shying away from really the, uh, these high growth names. International, industrial, small mid caps, recovery place. That's where you're looking to put your money. Abe, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Abe Deshpande with Centerstone Investors. Now to Washington, where Fed Chair Jay Powell just wrapped up a Senate confirmation hearing, making his pitch to lawmakers for another four years as head of the central bank. Elon Moy brings us the highlights now. Elon? Well, Kelly, if confirmed to a second term, Fed Chair Jay Powell's first job will be to start unwinding all of the central bank's pandemic support. And he tried to brace lawmakers today for what that might look like. I would expect that this year, 2022, will be a year in which we take steps toward normalization. That will involve raising the federal funds rate. That will involve ending asset purchases in March. And perhaps later this year, depending on the run of things, uh, we, would, we would also see ourselves beginning to allow the balance sheet to shrink. Now, some Democrats questioned Powell about pumping the brakes before all workers had benefited from the economic recovery. But Powell argued that keeping a lid on inflation is the best way to help everyone. We can see that participation is moving only very slowly. And to get a long expansion, we're going to need price stability. Right. And so in, in a way... High inflation is, is, a, is a severe threat to the achievement of maximum employment and to achieving a long expansion that can give us that. 
Now, Powell also defended the central bank's new ethics rules that prohibit officials from owning individual stocks and limit trading, especially after the revelations about outgoing Vice Chair Richard Clarida's financial transactions. But Kelly Powell called the Fed's new rules among the toughest in government. Back All to right. you. Elon, thank you, Elon Moy. Addressing the Fed's dual mandate of price stability and maximum employment at the hearing, Powell said inflation requires more attention right now. But my next guest says that doesn't necessarily mean more rate hikes. Joining me is David Zervos, the chief market strategist at Jefferies. David, it's great to have you here today. Are you still sort of on the dovish side of things? You know, I'm certainly more hawkish, Kelly, than I've been in the past, but that probably, you know, relative to the median of uh, pundits out there, I'm probably still more in the dovish camp just because I have, you know, long-term disinflationary views that mm -hmm. I believe will come back into the system probably more for the second half of the year once the supply disruption uh, storyline begins to dissipate. But we still have to get through a rough Q1 uh, and possibly Q2. But I think we're going to start to see some real inflation um, uh, headline drops as the Q2 comps are, are really going to be hard to beat. But that's not the first quarter's trade. Right, exactly. You're talking about, you know, first quarter, second quarter, we could, you know, even tomorrow we could still see some pretty high reads. So, where, you know, and I know you've still been pretty constructive on stocks overall, but trying to figure out what the Fed's reaction function is going to look like this year. Walk us through some of these scenarios as we're starting to hear people talk about four rate hikes from Goldman, more than four, Jamie Diamond's personal opinion. How, what do the tea leaves say to you? Well, first, I'll just say, Kelly, I've probably come in the least optimistic uh, that I've been in 12 years at Jefferies in terms of upside. I think the real risk is that, and I, I still have upside, maybe call it 50% of what my usual is in terms of uh, allocated to risk assets. But the reason is really that I think the Fed put or the, the, the downside is really not very well protected by the Fed. So I feel a lot less comfortable with them coming in and, and doing their usual backstops in a 10 to 15% downtrade. I think it's more like a 20 or 25% downtrade where they might come in. So I'll leave that out for you to start with. But, you know, in terms of four rate hikes, three rate hikes, two rate hikes, I think it's a really tricky one because my my bet and my uh, inclination is to believe that the balance sheet is going to play a more prominent role in this tightening exercise. And the more they go for a more rapid uh, cessation of the reinvestment of proceeds from the mortgage and treasury paydowns or and this is the wild card, Kelly, or choose to sell assets, which they did not do last time, but was certainly a topic of discussion back in 2010 when they were first discussing balance sheet normalization. I, I think there could be a, an interplay there that means the short end is not as much of the lever as the markets might be thinking here. And that could uh, work against some of these flattening bias trades that are out there. Why don't you think they're going to be as quick to react? You know, the market has actually been telling them they're wrong when they were tightening last cycle. They would try to tighten. They would talk about four rate hikes and the market would push back and they would basically concede the point. Why do you think it's different this time? Well, I, I think, um, you know, the market has been very optimistic about the long run inflation pressures, the, the break even inflations, you know, in the long run, five year, five year forward inflation break evens were unchanged last year, Kelly. People do not expect this to be a significant permanent inflationary event, at least those betting in the market. There's plenty of pundits that do. So I think they're, they're, they're often much more worried about the Fed overdoing it in its reaction to this very high set of inflation numbers that we have today, as opposed to losing credibility and underdoing it. And in fact, you know, you've got 30 years of history that says 
that disinflation has kind of dominated inflation when it comes to the risks. Um, I, I do think as well, Powell has a legacy to think about. He doesn't want to be, go down as the guy who, you know, undid 30 years of uh, Paul Volcker and Alan Greenspan and Ben Bernanke and Janet Yellen's hard work. So he has an incentive to be a little bit more hawkish here. And that's one of the reasons I'm coming into this year a lot less constructive than I usually am. I'm usually one of your most optimistic guests. Yeah, most optimistic on the market, absolutely. But now you're saying, you know, we only see about half as much upside as normal. Where does this leave you on on rates and bond yields? So again, I'm leaning to this idea that the Fed's going to not like it if they start tightening and the 10-year note yield does not go up, that if we get some sort of conundrum. And therefore, they could play with the balance sheet a little bit more. So I think we could have the short end not being as aggressively sold off as potentially the long end. And that has a lot of implications for your viewers who key uh, long-dated cash flows for growth stocks off of long-term bond yields. So I would be a little less constructive on the long end than I have been in the past. I don't think it's a runaway. I'm certainly not in the the Jamie Dimon 5% camp that, or I don't know if he's still there. He was there many years ago, but um, you know, he, he sounded quite hawkish recently. Uh, but, but I think there could be a little bit more hiccup at the long end, just because I think the balance sheet's more in play uh, from a sales perspective and from a speed perspective. Very interesting. And if you're right, it probably doesn't bode that well uh, for those areas that have already been under pressure from higher rates, which are you know taking a bit of a pause today, but could come back yep. to the fore. Dave, thanks. We really appreciate it. We'll check back in soon. Always a pleasure, Kelly. David Zervos joining me from Jeffries. Still ahead, a key inflation report is due out tomorrow. We're going to look at what it could mean for those rates in the NASDAQ trade we were just discussing, plus a billion-dollar trade, the corporate executives who won and lost big in the Reddit rebellion. Details ahead. This is... The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. Rising costs were a big concern in the latest NFIB survey, with the largest amount of small businesses in more than 40 years saying inflation was their number one concern. Tomorrow, we get the big CPI number, followed by PPI on Thursday, Friday, we get a check-in on the consumer, see how they're faring with all this pressure. Retail sales and a sentiment print are due out. My next guest says rates are definitely headed higher and inflation will be stubbornly persistent. Joining me now is Shri Kumar, president of Shri Kumar Global Strategies. It's great to have you back, Shri. And Good this, to be back, Kelly. This has been a big change for you when, you know, for much of the last couple of years, you were very, very 
bearish. It's always tricky when we're talking rates stay bearish. But you sort of thought the 10-year was going to 1% or even below. So this has been a big turn for you. Yeah, I was very bullish on 10-year yields, uh, Kelly, uh, until January 5th of 2021, when I made the abrupt shift. And I said then, for the previous four years, when the markets were saying that the yield was going to go up, and we had Jamie Dimon at one point talking about it going to 3 to 4% on the 10-year, I said before that happened, it was going to go below 1%. We actually did go very, very low until that time. Now, with the reins of power completely on the Democratic side, I thought there was going to be more spending. The Fed would continue what I call an irresponsible monetary policy, and that would boost the inflation finally to very high levels. And that's why even in the second, third quarters, when the 10-year yield came down, I did not change my view that we are headed toward the 10% on the 10-year and going even higher. So I have not changed my view over the past year at all. Yeah, you think we're headed towards 2% on the 10-year, maybe higher? At least. At least. Why, you know, now that we've seen pushback on some of the spending, the Build Back Better plan dead in the water, we've seen the Fed now talking and, and doing the taper and talking about rate hikes, is that, aren't your concerns now fully priced into the market? Those are great questions, Kelly. Let me, let's start out with the fiscal side. Fiscal side, and again, viewing it purely from the points of view of inflation and interest rates, uh, it, it's a more optimistic picture. It looks like anything like $1.85 trillion or $1.9 trillion of additional fiscal money is not likely to go through because of the balanced Senate and the opposition among some key Democratic senators. So the fiscal side is no longer worrisome to me from an inflation point of view. Unfortunately, the Federal Reserve is an unguided missile. It goes off by itself. And again, we found in early 2019, Jerome Powell abruptly pivoted from uh, talking about three rate hikes in 2019. He actually cut rates as many times. Mm -hmm. Now he's saying he's going to be hawkish. What does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. If the markets back off and if you have another 15, 20% correction in equity indexes, he may become dovish again. So this is kind of the point that David Zervos was just making where he said he thinks it would take a bigger market sell-off to make the Fed back off, that the Fed's a little bit more hawkish now. Um, but so talk to me, what, what do you think then is likely to happen this year? You know, again, the Goldman call is for rate hikes. The Jamie Dimon personal view is maybe even more than that. Certainly, it sounds like you think that would be warranted, but you just don't think the Fed is actually going to follow through with it. Precisely. Exactly. And you were talking about your conversation with David just earlier. The point here is the Fed has to increase substantial number of times. And the Fed should not back off even if the market's correct. That's not part of the Fed mandate. The Fed's mandate is employment and inflation. And the Powell Fed has worried itself about everything except those two variables. I've been saying for the last year, inflation is not transitory. It's going to be permanent. And I thought it was totally in my expectation that Powell would abruptly pivot and say, oops, sorry, no longer transitory. Now it's going to be sustained. He just realized it, one of the last to realize it. 
but it's been in the market, Kelly, for the last year. Nothing hmm. has changed. All right. And again, we're going to have a couple of reports that might highlight those pressures in the days to come. Shri, thanks. We really appreciate checking in with you today. Thank you, Kelly. Shri Kumar of Global Strategies. Coming up, it's been a rough start for chip stocks this year. We have the action and the details ahead in rapid fire. You can see those declines. Plus, some rare love for only today. City making it one of its top picks for 2022. This is a stock down 60% from its IPO last May. Why the optimism? We're back in two. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Want to bring your attention to the NASDAQ up 172 points today for now about a four or 500 point bounce off the 200 day moving uh, average yesterday. So for a lot of people, they'd say that's a pretty important test. Also, the Dow, by the way, is bringing uh, is brought up along with the rest of the rally. While the S&P is up 27 points, the Dow is up 85, though it's the laggard with only a quarter percent gain. We are at session highs right now. Here are some of the movers this hour. We are watching Peloton on pace for its best day in over a month after introducing a new cycling shoe, specifically for the bike and bike plus. Shares are up almost 8 percent. The shoes have a price tag of 145, so they'll cost you about four shares of Peloton right now. It's still down 80 percent from its all time highs. Also seeing a nice rebound in Zoom today on pace for its back-to-back, first back-to-back day, uh, daily gain since early December. Also down 60% from its highs. But you can see the pattern here. This is what's going on with the NASDAQ. Some of these stocks with major selling pressure are in the green. Gig economy stocks rallying too. DoorDash, Uber, Lyft, Fiverr, Upwork, all higher. Mostly in the range of 2 to 3%, but DoorDash up 7.5% today. Let's get to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly, and here's what's happening at this hour. A new unionization vote has been scheduled for an Amazon warehouse in Alabama. Ballots will be sent out on February 4th and counted on March 28th. The new vote was scheduled after Amazon was found to have violated labor laws during last year's union election. Senate Majority Leader Schumer says that the Senate could take action on election legislation as soon as tomorrow. That's as President Biden prepares for a major speech on voter rights this afternoon. Senate Minority Leader McConnell once again threatening retribution if the Senate's filibuster rules are changed. And on the news tonight, Biden's latest push to push new, push new election laws and why Republican opposition remains strong. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. And the Justice Department establishing a special unit focused on domestic terrorism. The department's top national security official says that the country faces an elevated threat from homegrown extremists. He says that the number of FBI investigations into suspected domestic violent extremists has more than doubled since 2020. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you. Still ahead, Bitcoin's big swings. Is it time to get into those chips? Oatly gets some rare Wall Street love. And Krispy Kreme's unique business model. It's all coming up in rapid fire right after this. Everybody, let's catch you up on a few calls that should be on your radar right now. It is time for Rapid Fire. And here to break it all down, we welcome Josh Lipton, Kate Rooney, and Steve Grasso, Grasso Global CEO and a CNBC contributor. Welcome, everybody. All right, let's start with Bitcoin. Leverage in Bitcoin is hitting a record high, adding more concerns to the crypto collapse. I don't know if it's collapse. 
The crypto is higher today, but still lower to start the new year after dropping 20% in December. New data from CoinShares shows crypto outflows hit a record last week of over $200 million. And Kate, certainly for a lot of people, it feels like a collapse that they're sitting with declines of 40%. Right. It depends on where you bought. And we talked about this a bit yesterday, Kelly. The Bitcoin spot markets have been relatively quiet. They're really struggling to bring in new buyers. But meanwhile, the derivatives market is booming. Uh, CoinShares had some some data there, but also Glassnode has put out some research showing uh, that it's at an all time high in terms of leverage. And really, the takeaway here is that there's more interest in Bitcoin's price and speculating on whether it's going up or down and really seen as more as a speculative bet than owning the asset itself right now. And so Glassnode uh, shows that they say it's at an aggressive pace in terms of growth. It hit an all-time high, and they really measure that by open interest. That's really the sum of the open contracts out there. Hit a new high this week. It's up 42% just since December. They also look at something called uh, the leverage ratio versus market cap. And so anytime that number is above 2%, they say it's really historically resulted in a sharp liquidation of contracts. That is one of the reasons you see some of these really volatile moves in Bitcoin. Right now, we're at about 1.9%. So getting really yeah. close to that level. And, uh, you know, Dogecoin, I know, is Josh's personal favorite. You, you have half of your net worth in Doge, right, Josh? <laughs> I don't own Doge. I mean, it, it's so interesting because listen, a lot of our audience watching right now, they moved in here, traders, investors, business people in part. Maybe they saw what they believe to be undisciplined spending in Washington. And so why not move you know, a portion of your portfolio over? I do think one interesting trend to watch, and Kate was all over this last year, was just how it's not just individuals anymore. It's, it's companies, it's corporations, it's financial institutions, it's countries. And so bulls would argue that's, you know, Kelly, perhaps a, a long-term powerful tailwind. Absolutely. And Steve, even Bill Miller, you know, the headlines yesterday, oh, half of his net worth. Well, you know, when you buy in 10 years ago or however long he did and a small part of your net worth, it can certainly grow to a number that large. Uh, definitely. And I, I think you hit it, hit it on the head, though. You know, when Josh talks about this, he talks about who's investing in it. And you, you give a name of a famous investor. What does that mean? It means it's becoming ubiquitous. It means that back when it first started out, no one was going to be the first crusader to sit there and say, I'm in Bitcoin. You got run over. Now, a lot of people give it the credibility, the validity that it's actually an investable tool. And to, to Josh and your point, there's other coins that people are willing to invest in. So although I do believe that the path for Bitcoin is higher, I also believe that people are going to dive in uh, a little more aggressive into the cheaper coins because the average person looks at Bitcoin, even where it's at now, even though it's off dramatically from its, from its high, they look at it and say, really, what, where is it going to go from here? Even though I do believe it will ultimately go higher, All right. the average person wants to buy the other coins. We'll talk to Jack Mallers about that next hour. But for now, let's move along and talk some key bank upgrading shares of AMD to a buy today. They like the cloud exposure, say it should help outperform other chip makers. AMD's down 4% to start the year. It is rebounding today somewhat. And Count Kramer is a buyer here as well. He told the CNBC Investing Club he's scooping up shares of AMD and Marvell Josh. 
So AMD down this year, but obviously Kelly, you know, a rocket ship in 2021, that stock was up was almost 60%, so a powerful run. I did talk to Bernstein, Stacey Rasgon. Now he is a neutral on AMD, uh, continues to think very well of their CEO, Lisa Su, real company with a real product, executing very well against their rivals, but he is on the sidelines. I think just to broaden out the discussion beyond just AMD, Kelly, very interesting moment here for chip investors because you know demand has been strong. You know, if you listen to those last round of earnings calls, those chip executives sounded very upbeat about their own business trends. But as Stacey Rasgon, who's been watching this sector for a long time, I know he's been kind of nervous here, Kelly, mm-hmm. uh, how long the good times can really last. He says, listen, his checks would indicate inventory is building with PCs and autos. So he's telling his clients, stick right now, be smart with what he would consider safety plays for him. That's Broadcom and secular growth stories for him. That's NVIDIA and Qualcomm. Right. Kelly. Whereas the ETF, the SMHC is down from its 318.52 week high to about 302 two right now. What, what are your trades here? So if you look at, as Josh said, NVIDIA and AMD, respectively, NVIDIA is up 100 uh, percent in a one year uh, on a one year basis. AMD is up 40 percent or, or so. So just think about what Josh just said. If you're a company, what are you going to do if there's a chip shortage? You're going to overorder. What does that do to supply? So once we get out of this supply chain issues, there's probably going to be a glut of chips that are available. So while I am long-term bullish on chips because everything from your connected car to your home, to your computer, your home office, all of our lives are becoming more chip-oriented, they are going to tip that balance with the supply chain freeing up. There's going to be too many chips, believe it or not, and uh, all too soon than we all want to realize. That's exactly what Stacy and others are, are watching and, and wondering about. All right. As I swallow, Uh, City is hot on beaten down consumer staples, naming Hostess, General Mills and even Oatly as top picks for 2022. Oatly, the alt milk brand, has gotten crushed since going public last May. It's down 60 percent. But City says growth should accelerate and margins should improve as more manufacturing capacity comes online. All right, Steve, let's let's pick through some of these food stocks here. First of all, Oatly, are you a fan? Well, this is something where I, you probably like the product. I, I, no. I like the product. I, you know, they had, you don't like the product. You're, you're, a, you're a whole milk girl, uh, aren't In fairness, you? I haven't actually tried it, but I eat a lot of oatmeal, so I don't need oat milk. <laughs> so, so I think that people, you know, I wind up in, in the refrigerator. I see a lot more of the alternatives at home, uh, just anecdotally. But when you look at these stocks, in theory, they make a ton of sense. In practice, They never really work out. Look at Beyond Meat. Everyone was going crazy over Beyond Meat. It's down 41% on a year-to-date, not a year-to-date basis, on a one-year basis. If you look at Tyson, it's up almost 40%. So these old players really come back into vogue. These new players where the the correctness of people's diet and all the allergies that are coming into into place, I, I don't know if it translates. The point is, I don't know if it translates to a good stock. I'd rather see this thing bottom out just a bit more and then run a little bit before I got on board. I think it's a reminder, Kate, that there can be a secular trend. I I totally agree with Steve. I see oat milks, alt milks everywhere, but does that mean that the name brand is necessarily going to reap all the gains? Right, absolutely. I mean, the consumer demand is clearly there. And Steve mentioned all meat and things that, I mean, that trend is really been on a tear, but they've had to deal with some of the similar issues to even the chip stocks. They've had supply chain issues. When you look at it from a pricing perspective, is it the right time to buy? 
you know, it trades more like a tech stock hmm. and a highly valued name than just a, a classic consumer staple. And it'll be interesting if they can expand beyond just oat milk. I mean, how big is the addressable market for oat products? I know they've got things like ice cream, but how many people are going to be buying more than a carton of oat milk a week? And who I, knows what else they can I know, and I, I love the consumer design and the packaging. Like, if I could buy it for that, I would. But again, it's... <laughs> There's a lot of oat milk. I'm out a fan, there. personally. Yeah, yeah. No, There's oatly in my fridge. So. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. All right, let's pivot to something a little less healthy, which is Krispy Kreme. A Bank of America hot on the name today, initiating coverage with a buy and a $23 price target, kind of making a, a fun observation about the business model. They're bullish on donut distribution because the long shelf life means Krispy Kreme can ship consistent product around <laughs> to markets globally. Um, in other words, Josh, they don't have to worry about making it fresh on-prem at every location. You know, it, the product can hold up pretty well in transit. I was surprised by this one, Kelly, because I, I remember Krispy Kreme, you know, to be honest, I don't follow the story that closely. I did remember it sort of had its moment. You know, you remember you had seen Krispy Kreme at parties, even weddings. I didn't know that was really still a thing. Um, I don't follow the donut space all that closely. I'll tell you, my two-year-old, if you want her to do anything right now, it's a powdered donut hole. So there is, there is some strong donut demographic, but that's about the extent of my knowledge, Kelly. <laughs> Steve? Well, it is pretty amazing that the chart looks better on, on uh, Krispy Kreme than it does on Oatly, <laughs> right? Because they, no, no one wants to say that I, I want to take down, you know, five donuts with a nice big glass of whole milk. That's not a popular thing to say, but that's probably what people are doing in the privacy of their own home. But when you look at the stock, it's got a light float. It's only about 167 million shares out. It's bounced from its low around 1270 up to about 19 and a half. All right. Look at where the stock is now, 17 and a half. That means that your halfway part, I'll wrap it up really quick. You're above your 50% retracement here. So the stock looks constructive. Does it run into resistance? Probably for another 20%, Kelly. All right. Crispy over Oatly. That's the, that's the message from Rapid Fire today. <laughs> have to leave it there. Thank you all. We appreciate it. Krispy Kreme CEO Michael Tatters, by the Michael Tattersfield, I'm sorry, will join Closing Bell today at 3 p.m. Eastern for an exclusive interview to elaborate on all of this. Coming up, shares of medical device and treatment maker Baxter climbing over the past three months as the company navigates supply chain challenges. We'll talk to the CEO next. Welcome back. It's a MedTech merger. Baxter completing its acquisition of Hillrom last month to create a $15 billion medical device company. And shares are up about 5% over the past month. Joining us now for an exclusive interview from the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference is Baxter Chairman and CEO Joe Almeida, along with CNBC's Meg Terrell. Meg? Kelly, thanks so much. Joe, thanks for being with us out of the J.P. Morgan virtual conference. You know, I want to start off by asking you about the sight line you have into hospitals through your business, supplying them and working with them with this massive Omicron surge we're going through right now. What are you seeing in terms of the impact that's having on hospitals? Well, first of all, uh, Meg, thank you for having me today. Um, hospitals are uh, very stressed. As we can see, uh, Omicron has put a significant amount of burden in hospitals. We are doing the best we can. We're supplying products from all corners of the world. Um, we tend to be more localized with our manufacturing facilities, but we are seeing tremendous uh, um, uh, increase in demand for specific products, primarily the ones to treat patients um, with with COVID. So it is it is a tough time right now. Um, our 
our gratitude to all the healthcare workers who are today working so hard to treat the patients across uh, the U.S. and the globe. Now, with that increase in demand, of course, you know, we're thinking back to the beginning of, pandem- of the pandemic. We saw so many of these products go into shortage. Are you seeing any of that now, or are we a little bit more resilient in terms of being able to source these things and predict the demand? Um, how, is, how is supply holding up? Well, um, the supply was holding up okay to a certain point. Omicron has created um, a short-term imbalance in demand. We see significant uh, surge in certain classes of products. We're doing everything we can. We're working 24 uh, hours a day, seven days a week in all of our facilities that require products to be made uh, to be supplied to hospitals. But it is a challenge uh, for, for us. We are doing the best we can, and we are allocating based on, on need and the need is based on uh, severity of the infection in certain parts of the country and more hospitals that need uh, uh, products. So we are uh, providing products. We created more resilience in our supply chain. We added more shifts, but also uh, we have uh, supply chain challenges that come in with the whole supply chain challenge uh, challenge across the, the, the globe. What Baxter is doing is doing everything it, ca- it can do to save and sustain lives. How are you modeling kind of where things go from here as much as nobody has a crystal ball and it's impossible really to know as you're planning for just sort of business continuity? What does the rest of the year look like from the pandemic perspective? So um, if you think about the visibility that we have is is clear in the next three to six months to project the whole year. It becomes more difficult and more opaque. Um, but if we think about the pandemic moving into an endemic state, uh, we'll probably normalize towards the mid half of the year. Uh, so we think that by that point, some of the supply chain may alleviate as we start to see this become more a endemic and less of a pandemic crisis that we have today. Um, the way we model this, we have significant amount of data that comes in. We do the best we can in terms of predicting procedures, procedure volumes, as well as the use of our products across the board. So it is, it is uh, we had up significant our capabilities of predicting uh, what is going on. Despite the fact that we did this, Omicron has been a tremendous uh, disruptor across the board. And as we manage through this, uh, we hope that this by in a couple of months will become more tamed as we saw um, happen in South Africa and some data actually out of the UK. We absolutely hope the same. Joe, we got to leave it there. But thank you so much for being with us from the J.P. Morgan Conference. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And Meg, our thanks to you as well for bringing that to us. Our Meg Terrell and Joe Almeida of Baxter. And Power Lunch will have more from that conference with the CEO and chairman of Cigna. They'll speak to David Cordani coming up at 2.15 p.m. Eastern. Still ahead, United Airlines starting the year strong with shares at more than 7%. Not even words of warning from a former FDA commissioner deterring investors today. That's next. Time for a little show and tell. That's where we show you a chart and tell you the story. And today we're looking at United Airlines. The shares are up 8% since last Monday, despite the carrier cutting even more flights. United CEO Scott Kirby saying about 3,000 of its workers have COVID. But former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb is skeptical. Probably 10% of the population is actively infected with COVID. So 3,000 out of an employee base of 93,000 is actually 
probably below, um, you know, the estimate nationally. I suspect they're not picking up all the cases that they're experiencing. United Airlines outperforming its peers, but Southwest, Alaska Air, American and Delta are also positive so far this year. So that's part of the market that's been working. The GameStop trade, not just minting millions for one high profile CEO, it made him billions. But not everyone was so lucky. We'll look at the huge amounts that have been made and lost since the start of the Reddit rebellion. That's next. We've been covering the one-year anniversary of the rise of the Redditors. And while retail traders got a lot of attention and some made a lot of money, there were a few corporate executives who won and lost big in those early days, too. Robert Frank is here with that story. Robert? Well, Kelly, the biggest winner is Ryan Cohen. Cohen, of course, is a 36-year-old founder of Chewy. After selling that company, he started investing. And in 2020, he began buying shares of GameStop for between four and five bucks a share. By the end of 2020, he'd invested $76 million for about 13% of the company. Now that $76 million investment is worth $1.1 billion, giving him a 1,400% return. A year ago today, he was named to the board as part of a company shakeup. He is now the largest individual shareholder and says he has no plans to sell. Writing in a recent tweet, he said, quote, deciding between two options for my GME stake, hold or hodl. Now, some other insiders have cashed out. Director James Wolf sold $17 million of his shares last January at about 21 bucks a share. Other directors have sold over $3 million in shares. Now, one investor bailed right before the run-up. That was Donald Foss. He is the subprime lending billionaire. He invested $13 million in the company. He sold all of it at the end of December 2020 for about $60 million. If he had held on, that stake would be worth over $450 million today. Now that Cohen is chairman, he has to prove that company's $10 billion market cap and execute that new push into e-commerce and NFTs, which could be a lot tougher, Kelly, than just the perhaps easier money he made over the past year. Yeah, I mean, he only has a billion dollars from the stake if he sells it. Otherwise, it's just paper gains. And if that stake dwindles in value because he can't pull it off, then... It doesn't matter how much it was worth at the peak. Yeah, and he said he learned from his father about investing, which is rather than diversify, you just pick a small number, a handful of blue chip stocks and hold them for life. So if that's truly his belief, he's going to ride this thing out for a very long time rather than just quickly sell. Uh, that's very interesting. It's like what Charlie Munger always says. He doesn't want to put you know, his eggs in different baskets. He wants all of his eggs in one basket and to guard it closely. <laughs> Worked out pretty well That's for exactly him. exactly right. Robert, thank you. Our Robert yep. Frank reporting. That does it for The Exchange today, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.